while we're getting transitioned, if you would go ahead and find your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 42. You guys, for the last couple of weeks, have been studying through the Psalter. Kevin has been trying to give you some hooks to hang the different Psalms on as you think about how the Psalms are structured and what kind of genre the Psalms are. He may have used this illustration to you before, but sometimes we should think of genre in Scripture like a newspaper, right? You read a newspaper, there's bunch of text in that newspaper, but you won't read the front page news article the same way you would read the comics, right? There's different rules, different things to look for, and you you won't read those things the same way you'd read the classified section or a a Q&A or an editorial. All of those things, although they're contained in one piece of literature, are actually very, very different, and the Psalms are no exception. And so you've probably already listened to Kevin talk about some kind of genre within the Psalms, but tonight we're going to look at Psalms of Lament. For the most part, all of the Psalms that you read and all of the Psalms that we'll study are going to fall on a gradient between Psalms of praise and Psalms of lament. Psalms that are full of joy and Psalms that are full of sorrow. And you'll find things in between like psalms of thanksgiving and psalms of wisdom and psalms of confidence and psalms of remembrance and those kinds of things. But two polar opposites of the Psalter are these two things. Now, I just want to read Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation, and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night, His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. And I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father, You have created us in Your image. You have made us body and soul. And You have given us the gift of emotion. We are emotional creatures. But Lord, the reality is we live in a world that is broken and fractured and dark and dim. So Lord, help us when sorrow and grief grip our hearts. Help us when confusion and depression and isolation cloud our minds. 
Help us to lament rightly. Help us not to run away from these feelings of sorrow, but instead to engage them in a way that will lead us nearer to your presence. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight we're looking at Psalms of Lament. Now, lamenting is not really something we talk about in casual conversation, right? Like if I'm asking, how's your day going? You're probably not going to respond with, it's been full of lamenting, right? That's probably not a conversation any of us want to have. We probably, we don't even really use that word. It's not, it's not in our cultural vernacular. We don't talk about lamenting over a thing, but we do lament. We cry out in pain or sorrow, and usually for all of us, our laments are directed towards someone else. Rarely do we lament in isolation. Our lamenting has an aim. So maybe you lament to a parent. Maybe you just have to call mom when it's hard. Or, or maybe it's a good friend or a roommate. Maybe the person you're closest to. And none of those people are necessarily bad counselors. None of those people are necessarily going to steer you wrong. But as we'll see in the Psalms, as we'll see in this Psalm, laments that we find in Scripture are ultimately directed to God. Now, Israel knew what it meant to lament. That's who's writing this, the Israelites. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Exodus chapter 2. I'm, I'm going through the book of Exodus with our junior high and high school students. And in Exodus chapter 2, this is what the word says in verse 23. It says, during those days, the days of Israel's oppression and slavery in Egypt, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue for, from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Israel is a people, in many ways, molded and shaped by lament. There's one scholar who, who notes that when we read the Psalms, the majority of the Psalms are laments. You think about kind of putting the weight one way or the other. It starts really heavy in lament and ends in joyous praise, which is wonderful hope for us that this is not the end of the road for us. But it is a dominant theme in the Psalms. And so one scholar writes this. He says, the predominance of laments at the very heart of Israel's prayers means that the problems that give rise to lament are not something marginal or unusual, but rather are central to the life of faith. Moreover, they show that the experience of anguish and puzzlement in the life of faith is not a sign of deficient faith, something to be outgrown or put behind one, but rather is intrinsic to the very nature of faith. So here's the point for you and me. It is not wrong to lament in this life. It is okay to be sad. There are things that should make you sad in your life. It's okay to feel heartache and to feel sorrow when the brokenness of reality comes to bear on you, whether it's cancer or a, a failed job interview or a failed class or a broken relationship. And if you weren't here just a couple of months ago when Jay and Catherine Wolf came, let me just encourage you to find, find the recording of that. It's online. It's on the church's website. Here is a family's life that has been marked with suffering, and they're not afraid to discuss the reality that that leads them to lament. Their life is not as it should be. And so the Psalms of Lament, I think, will, will give you and me and all believers, if we'll 
take the time to look, it will give us language and it will give us tools to lament well. That there's a way to lament that is not good for you. And there is a way to lament that is good for you. So we're going to look at the markers of a psalm of lament from Psalm 42. Now, you'll rarely find all six of these markers in one psalm, but you will find multiple markers as you read those psalms. So I'm going to put them up on the screen. Uh, they are, the acrostic is app trap. Maybe that's something you can remember, app trap. So those are the six points. We're going to walk through all six of them, but just so that you can see it right there, it is addressed to God. We will see petitions. We will see trouble described. We'll see reasons why God should answer. We'll see assurance declared, and we are going to see praise or a promise of sacrifice. You don't have to try to copy everything right this second because we'll go one at a time, okay? First, we see an address to God. Look again at verse 1. The psalmist writes, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And while that's a phrase that many of us have heard before, or maybe we've sung that song, those of you who are worship leaders, this is just a little lighthearted side note. Um, there's a guy named Paul Balash. You may know him, you may not. He's written a bunch of songs. And he is kind of famous for making some videos about how to be a worship leader, like how to sing songs and lead music in a church. And I will never forget, when I think about As the Deer, you know that song, As the Deer Painted for the Water. Uh, so he's talking about key changes. And he's talking about how you don't need to put, like most of you have tuned out, that's fine. But for those of you who are musically inclined, just go with me, right? He says, you should never, no, never, no, never, as Brother Al says, uh, put one song in one key right next to one song in another key that's a half step off, right? So it's like, you shouldn't be like, praise the Lord as the deer panteth for the water. Like, it just sounds terrible. So every time I think, as the deer pants for flowing streams, I just see Paul Balash in his early 2000s faux hawk. But Psalm 42 begins with this address. It says, as a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. We address our complaints and petitions to a lot of people and a lot of places in our life. We get frustrated at friends. We get angry with family. We have to deal with certain situations. And what the Psalms of Lament show you and me is that God is big enough to handle your junk. Again, it's not wrong to go to these other people. It's not wrong to, to go to a loved one or a counselor or a faithful friend, but He is inviting you to bring your burdens to Him. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Peter tells us to cast our cares on him. So, so what if, as we think about this address, what if when trouble comes your way and you realize, man, this is not good. I'm not in a good place. This, there, I am overwhelmed. Or I, I read the story about how there's been another shooting or there's been another uh, epidemic of a virus or there's been another uh, thing going on in the world that is just unconscionable. When I find myself in that position, it's easy for us to desensitize ourselves and say, it's just another day, live in a broken world. Eh. But what if, as the psalmist does here, what if when trouble comes our way, we could cultivate a habit of going to the Lord? How do you think that would change our perspective on the world around us? I think it would do two things. I think it would on the one hand, increase the weight of sin and brokenness because we would actually start to feel it for what it is. But it would also help us to cast our cares and burdens on the one who can handle it all. So first we see in Psalms of Lament, God is addressed. Second, we see petitions. We see petitions. These petitions are usually for being heard. The psalmist is saying, hey, Lord, I want you to listen to me. I need you to incline your ear towards me. Hear my cry. That, that kind of language. And here in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, it's expressed as thirst. As a deer pants for water, so his soul thirsts for God. 
Have you ever been really thirsty before? Like maybe some of you have tried to do like the saltine cracker challenge thing, right? And you know that it's kind of debilitating to not have moisture, right? It, it's, it, you can't really think about anything else. You just think, I need water. Nothing in comparison in that moment really seems to be important. And I think the psalmist wants us to see this parallel. That when we lament, what we ought to want more than anything is God. What we ought to have in our life in that moment more than anything is knowledge and awareness of His presence. So the question for us as we kind of think about Psalms of Lament is, do you and I thirst for God? Does it seem at times that you and I wander through a desert without water? Do we find ourselves going to wells full of dirty water thinking that we'll be satisfied? Or do we go maybe with broken jars and think that we'll carry the water that we'll need, but in the end will leave us with nothing? And one of the things I hope you see, and I hope that Kevin's been doing, is that in the Psalms we will see Christ. And here, as we think about these petitions, as we think about thirsting for God, I'm reminded of Jesus calling himself living water. Right? He's a well that springs up into eternal life. He's a well that will never run dry. And it may not be instantly satisfying. Right? Look, I mean, look at the psalm. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This psalmist is not getting all of his answers and solutions in this moment. The psalmist knows what's right, calls for what's right, but is not immediately satisfied. So, so we need to get this. Sometimes trusting the Lord will lead to disappointment. Let me say that again. Sometimes trusting the Lord will lead to disappointment. Because you will think, what I need most in this moment is X. And the one who has all wisdom says, son, daughter, you don't even know what you need. You think you need this. So your disappointment in your petitions is not due to the fact that God has forgotten you or that he's neglecting you or that you've somehow, because of your unfaithfulness or sin, blocked God's sovereign power from being able to work in your life. No, it's because his ways are not our ways. It's because he's putting your flesh to death. He's working all things together for good. And he's being patient towards you. So we see an address to God in verse 1. We see in verses 1 and 2 this petition. And now we move to verse 3 and kind of jumping around the psalm to see trouble described. There's a reason why the psalmist is lamenting. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. Now I'm just going to confess and be honest, I, I don't, I don't have a memory of ever weeping like that. I mean, I've endured some things in my life, but, but not tears as food day and night. But I might. I'm not promised freedom from that. I'm not promised freedom from that tonight. God forbid I could go home tonight and with a phone call get brought to my knees. None of us are invincible from suffering. None of us are immune to great sorrow. And so just because I haven't experienced that doesn't mean that you haven't. There are probably some of us in this room that if we knew the things that you have walked through, it would shut us up. Great sorrow and great sin, great loss, it should move us. So look at the trouble of the psalmist. Not only was he full of sorrow and grief, but he was mocked by others in the midst of it. Those around him say to him, where is your God? 
They're saying, look, you're experiencing all this hardship, all this trouble, all this strife, and you say that you follow this mighty God. Well, where is he? Surely if he loved you, he wouldn't allow you to endure that kind of heartache, that kind of pain, that kind of sorrow. So, so, I mean, is he even really there? So he uses the refrain and says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? If you've done this, right? Talk to yourself. We all do. And he's saying, I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't feel this way. I know that God is faithful. I know that he keeps his word. I know that he's never broken a promise. I know that he loves his children and he's working all things for good. if, If Joseph can say what you meant for evil, God meant for good. If he can say that and his brothers sold him into slavery, then surely I can believe that he's good in the midst of my pain. He knows the state of his soul. And here's here's the important part for you and for me. He knows that his soul is not as it should be. There's something wrong with me. And it's not, I'm faithless. It's not, I've wandered away. It's, my flesh is faltering in the midst of what's around me. And my heart and my mind have become disjointed. I know in my head what's true. But my heart has not interpreted it rightly in this moment. And so what I feel right now is great loss and great confusion and great pain, even though I know God is for me and not against me. Even though I know God is faithful to His promise. Even though I know that He will never leave me. Students, that's the reality of living in a broken world with a broken body and a broken mind. So he goes back to verse 9 to complaints. He, he, we'll get to it in a minute, but he, he says all of these things that are true about God. It's as though he's reminding himself in verses 5 through 8. And then he says to, in verse 9, I say to God, my rock. I say to God, my rock. The one that I can trust. The one that I can depend on. The one that I can rest on because he is unmoving. I say to him, why have you forgotten me? You see the disjointed heart and mind here? He knows what's true. But knowledge alone doesn't just turn the switch in my heart. It seems like God has forgotten him and his enemies notice. And so they oppress him. They taunt him so badly, it says, it feels like he has a wound in his bones. And the reality is, God has made you and me body and soul. There's a study I read one time that said, uh, they did, this, they did this, <coughs> this study at a clinic for people who come in with chronic pain. It's like arthritis or like pain in your leg or something like that. And they... they they did this study to figure out, okay, from all of these people who came in with chronic pain, what was the cause? And what they found was like 70% of the people who came in complaining of chronic pain did not have a physiological issue. It was psychosomatic. They thought that my hands are sore and tired and hurting, and so they felt pain in their hands. Students, your bodies and your minds are linked. Your body and your soul affect one another. So the sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me is trash. It's not true. Right? Some of us, you've reached a certain age where you look back and go, That was dumb. Why did we say that to each other? That's not true at all, right? Some of your deepest wounds probably came from words. 
feels like he has a deadly wound in his bones over their mockery. And here's the chief complaint. Here's the trouble that he describes. More than the taunting, more than the mocking, more than the questioning of his enemies, and more than the turmoil, he wonders, where is God? He feels what the enemies are saying. And his soul is being affected by the lie that God is absent. You've probably heard Kevin say this, but I'll reiterate it maybe in a different way. Don't think for a second that what you hear and what you see and what you experience and what you allow yourself to be part of, don't think for a second that it's not forming you. Don't think for a moment that that's not molding you into a kind of person who believes certain things, who does certain things, who thinks certain ways. I mean, here is the psalmist proclaiming truth about who God is, but is still listening to the lies of his enemies and begins to wonder, well, yeah, where are you, God? They have a point. His soul being affected by the lie that God is absent. He knows it's not true, but he feels like it is. So next we see the fourth point. And these are reasons for why God should answer. Look at verse 4. He says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise and a multitude of keeping festival. Sometimes, sometimes, in the Psalms, the reasons why God should answer the psalmist includes confession of sin. That makes a lot of sense, right? A lot of times you're going to read Psalms of Lament and you will find that as they look at their own hearts, they will realize, oh Lord, I am in trouble, I am in sorrow, and it's because I've been harboring sin in my own heart. And so Lord, I confess that to you. Cleanse my heart, O God, David says. But sometimes, in Psalms of Lament, it will include an assertion of innocence or an example of faithfulness. And that's what we see here in verse 4. The psalmist says, God, I want to worship you. You know my life. You know how I live. I, I lead your followers and your people into the procession of the house of God with shouts and songs of praise. We keep festival worshiping you. He's done it before. He wants to do it again. And he remembers that it is good to shout songs of praise in the house of God. Now, that might kind of disorient us, right? Because confession of sin makes sense. When I'm lamenting over the reality of a broken world and the reality of a broken life, it makes sense to cry out to God to say, God, help me for I have sinned. I need forgiveness and I need mercy all the time. And so that seems normal. But in Psalm 42, verse 4, the psalmist is defending himself. He's asserting innocence to a holy God. In other words, he's saying, God, I don't deserve this. Now, doesn't that seem off to you? Well, let's just be honest. Like we, we go to a church where the holiness of God and the reality of our sinfulness are very clearly on display. And praise God, because that's biblical. So doesn't it seem off that the psalmist would go before the Lord in sorrow and lament and say, God, I don't deserve what's happening to me. Because we would very quickly say, oh, it's grace that your heart is beating right now, psalmist. Are you making that happen? Or is the king of kings upholding all things in the universe by the word of his power, including the electrons moving around in that heart? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God for what he does? 
If you're here on Sundays, we'll get to that text pretty quick. So what do we do with this? What do we do with, with these assertions of innocence? Now listen to Trimper Longman. He says, we must remember that there are occasions when people are persecuted or harassed in situations or for reasons for which they are totally innocent. And assertions of innocence do have a proper place in the context of prayer. So students, hear me and hear the Scripture. Experiencing sorrow in your life is sometimes due to what you and I have done sinfully. But sometimes experiencing sorrow is due to what has been done to us. And so we do not declare our innocence in order to remind God something that He must have forgotten. Instead, when we assert our innocence before God, we are confessing that the world is broken, that the world is unjust, and we need our justifier to make things right. So you should not feel guilty when you are being oppressed or if you're being abused. You shouldn't feel guilty for saying to the Lord, God, I, I don't deserve this. Please take this away because I, I don't deserve, I'm trying to follow you, I'm trying to be faithful to you, and I know that my works are like filthy rags before you, but I live in a broken world, in an unclean world with unclean people, and God, you are righteous and just, so God, would you make your justice reign in my life? You can pray that prayer. Now, it isn't in this psalm, but that's why sometimes when you read psalms of lament, you will read sections that include curses or imprecations. There's a word called imprecatory psalms. So just hold your place in Psalm 42 and find with me Psalm 109. I want you to put your eyes on this. Psalm 109. This is King David. This is what he says. Look at verse 1. Psalm 109, verse 1. He says, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. Now skip down to verse 8. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. Let's just stop there. You get the point. David is praying that God would condemn and judge this man. And not just this man, but his family. And what's going on there? That seems insane that you and I would pray that kind of prayer in 2020. We're New Testament Christians, right? Like we're grace and mercy. So how do we make sense of what is Spirit-inspired Scripture given for us that's profitable? What do we do with these kinds of psalms? We need to recognize what is David really asking for. In this psalm, in this moment, David is asking for justice. David is asking for the wicked to be held accountable. David is asking for those who mock the Lord to be silenced. David is crying out to the Lord for righteousness and justice to rule. And so as believers, you and I pray that the blood of Christ might cover our enemies through the power of the gospel. You pray for those who persecute you, Jesus says. But we also pray that justice would reign in our land. It's not wrong for you and me to pray that criminals would be caught. It's not up to the state to decide, well, I know you murdered all those people, but you know we're just a gracious nation. And so, you sorry? Okay, we're good. No, we want justice to reign. We want criminals to be caught. We want bad people to be stopped. And so we can pray 
with our assertions of innocence and giving reasons of why God should answer, we can pray knowing that ultimately from our hearts we're crying out, God, I want your righteousness to rule and reign in my life and in the life of the world. So the psalmist give reasons. Back to Psalm 42. He's addressed the Lord. He's given these petitions. He's described the trouble that he's enduring. He's given reasons why God should answer a sinner like him. And fifth, he declares assurance. Now this is usually found in a psalm of lament, assurance declared. It's usually found in a psalm of lament as confidence or trust. And the psalmist here declares in the second half of verse 5 and in the second half of verse 10 or verse 11 rather, he says, "Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God." He's not wondering as to whether or not he will praise the Lord again. He's saying, "It's going to happen." He remembers God's faithfulness. God's love is steadfast and sure. Look again at verse 7. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands His steadfast love. And at night, His song is with me. When the psalmist prays to God, he knows that God hears him. Because he is the God of his life. Even though he doesn't feel like he hears him, he knows. He knows the word. He knows history. And so for us, the application there is, when I find my knowledge and my affections to be disjointed, I don't lean into my affections. I lean into what I know. Because if I lean into my affections, Jeremiah says, I'm going to follow a heart that's deceitful and wicked and should not be trusted. But I'm to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And God is giving us through his word knowledge and wisdom that we can stand on when our hearts falter and fail. Here's the good news for us as we think about Psalms of Lament. Every psalm of lament in the psalms includes some kind of turn that includes a declaration of trust or confidence in God. There is no hopeless psalm. So what does that tell you and me? It tells us that no matter how dark it gets, and no matter how faint you feel today, and no matter how God seems to you, whether He's near or far, God hears you, and He sees you, and He knows you, and He's with you, even in the midst of searing loss, we can declare with confidence that the God of Scripture is worthy to be trusted. I was teaching last Sunday from Exodus 3 and 4, and Moses is trying to give all of these reasons to the Lord as to why He's not the guy that He should pick. And one of the things He asks is, who am I going to say you are? What, what name will I give Israel so that they'll believe me when I say, hey, your God and my God spoke to me in a bush that was on fire but not really being consumed? You should listen to me. Like, how are they not going to say, you've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years and you're crazy? What does God say? He says, tell them, I am who I am has sent you. Now we may think, I am who I am. That doesn't really mean a lot to me. That's kind of like asking, hey, how are you doing? And you respond with, yes. Right? Like you ever ask somebody, hey, how's it going? And they're like, nothing much. Or like, hey, what are you up to? I'm fine. Like you're answering the wrong question. And so so Moses is asking God, he's asking the the bush that's on fire and talking to him, uh, what's your name? I am who I am. That's not a name. Like, I need a little bit more. But what's helpful for you and and me to know in this 
moment, and specifically as it relates to this psalm and our assurance of confidence, is that there's really a lot of difficulty in trying to translate temporality or chronology or past, present, and future tense in Hebrew. Like we have, I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. But in the Hebrew, translators have to work with the context around it to figure out what, what's really going on there. So we translate it normally in the present tense, I am who I am. But it very well could be translated, I have been that which I will always be. So what God is telling Moses is the same God that promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is promising you. The same God that saved Noah and his family through a judgment that covered the whole earth, I'm promising to be with you. And for us, as we read these Psalms of Lament, by day, verse 8, the Lord, Yahweh, I am, commands His steadfast love. God is with us. And He's faithful. He is unchanging. He has never let His children down. Student, He's not going to start with you. So we can declare this assurance. And then finally, our sixth point, we see in Psalms of Lament, praise or a promise of sacrifice. He says it again, hope in God, I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. He says it again in verse 11, the exact same phrase. Sometimes in the Psalms of Lament, you're going to find a commitment to sacrifice. They're going to say, my response to you is going to be a sacrifice of praise, or I'm going to go to the temple and worship you through sacrifice. It's going to be a commitment to obey the Word of God more faithfully. And here, the promise is worship. The psalmist is at rock bottom. His mind and his heart are not connected. He's surrounded by enemies who are mocking him. But his response in the midst of his pain is to declare to the Lord, God, I will worship you. So in the midst of our sorrows, you and I can lift up a praise. You and I can worship however quietly or however broken we can still praise the Lord because we know that one day He will make all things right. So we can put our hope in Him in the midst of our lamenting. And we remember that through Christ, God has freed you from the ultimate sorrow. He has freed you from the ultimate pain and grief. You have been inoculated to ultimate lament. He has promised you eternal delight. So we've got to remember that the Psalms don't end in lament. They end in worship. And there's a reason for that. Because the same is true for the life of a Christian. And I assume that the, this would be a good time for the... Oh, well, there's going to be some prayer time. So let me just, let me just say this. I don't know your life. I don't know your story. I don't know if you're a Christian. I don't know if you would claim that you follow Jesus, if you have an understanding of the gospel that Timothy, Paul tells Timothy just very clearly that this is the good news, that Christ Jesus has come to save sinners. So I don't know if you hold that dear. I assume that most of you do. It's 9.30 at night on a Wednesday in the middle of the rain, and you're here. So let me encourage you. God has not promised you an easy life. He's not promised you freedom from heartache. What He actually has promised you is that you will find trouble in this life. What He actually has promised you is that the Christian life looks like taking up a cross daily. It looks like dying actually. That's what the Christian life looks like. But we're imitators of Christ. 
And so even though we might lament the reality of a broken world, even though we might have sorrow over the sins of our heart, as we die to ourselves, following in the footsteps of Jesus, we remember that Jesus did not stay dead. And that after death in the Christian life, there comes resurrection. So, so don't get the order out of whack. You don't just get to resurrect, right? You have to die first. And oftentimes, suffering and pain and hardship is one of the best teachers in our life. I'll just share this story with you. It's not heavy or super serious comparatively to maybe some of your stories, but when I came on staff, I was um, first an intern. I was an intern here at Lakeview for three years, and one of the stipulations of being an intern is that you can't work another job, and you have to raise your own support. You have to raise, you have to basically find yourself a paycheck somehow, so that's what we did, and we had a lot of one-time gifts as we up and moved from Troy, where my wife and I live, to Auburn, we felt really confident that the Lord was going to provide. We, we were excited about what the Lord was going to do in our lives, and we moved in May. And I distinctly remember late September of that year, the one-time gifts had run out. Our monthly support had not been where it needs to be. And I remember looking at my wife in the kitchen going, I don't know how we're going to pay rent next month. That's not something you want to say to your spouse. Spoiler alert. Especially, especially as, a, as a husband. Like, I, I'm responsible for you. Like, I'm responsible for my bride. I'm, I'm responsible to provide and to lead and to love and to serve and to sacrifice myself as Christ has died for the sake of his bride. And I have to look at her and say, I don't know how this is going to happen. We were in grief in that moment. Wondering, is this where we're supposed to be? If, if God really wanted us here, wouldn't he have provided for us? There's a, a really famous Hudson Taylor quote that says, God's will, God's way will never lack God's supply. And so I'm starting to wonder, are we in God's will? Are we, are we doing things God's way? Am I leading my family rightly? Is this now just this thing from my own pride? Have I become this imposter and so we pray and ask the Lord. I say, God, I don't, I don't know where this would come from, but we're trusting you. And we know that you're faithful. We know that you're good. We know that you're able to provide for the needs of your children. And we went to sleep. Because <laughs> what else can you do? The next day, I go to my mailbox. And there's a letter, and in the letter are, or in the envelope is a letter and two checks. Red letter, and the letter is from a person that goes to Lakeview that I don't even have like a really strong relationship with, like may have had one meal with them. So hey, we were thinking about you and asking the Lord how we might serve you and bless you, and we're so thankful that you're following God's will and we know it's hard. We've, we've watched a lot of interns come through. And so uh, there's two checks in this. We want you to rest. So here's a check for the rest of the year's rent. And here's a check that you're not allowed to spend on anybody but you and your wife. We want you to lead her well, love her well. Y'all, I'm not an emotional person, but I'm like breaking down in my kitchen like, God knew you had it. Like, I, yeah, you, you know, like, but I had to die. I had to, I had to expose myself to my wife and not be this proud, confident, equipped person, but to say, I, I'm needy. I wouldn't ask for this, but here we are. And the Lord was able to use that in a way that taught us about his provision and his compassion in a way that I would not have learned through affluence. I wouldn't have learned it without some lamenting. So what I want you to do is, for the next just couple of minutes, we're going to spend some time praying. 
And if you have a Bible or somebody next to you with a Bible, I think you guys may be getting some small groups. I want you to turn to Psalm 54. Psalm 54. So we'll spend some time reading through that, praying through that. But what I want to do is I want to pray for you as we kind of kick this off. And then after we spend some time praying through this psalm, we'll conclude tonight by responding in some more worship. So let me pray. God in heaven, we remember that your son is known as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that he was stricken and afflicted. And yet, Jesus was the most satisfied, joyful, content human to have ever lived. So, Lord, that doesn't make sense in our minds, but I pray that you would help us to believe your word to be true. That as we follow you, as we obey your word, as we live our lives empowered and fueled by your present spirit, as you lead us to die, would you remind us that in following the footsteps of our Savior, there we will find joy because it is there that we will find you. So God, help us to lament. Help us to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. Remind us that you are able to carry our burdens, that you have promised to give us rest. Maybe not today, but your promise will come to pass. And Lord, maybe, just maybe, you've surrounded us with brothers and sisters, even in this room, that by your wisdom you've seen fit to put in our paths so that they might share our burdens. That's what we as the body of Christ are to do, to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another, to minister to one another, to pray with and for one another, to love one another, one another as ourselves. So God, help us to see the sorrow of this world, to understand the grief that we experience, but to use it as a means to lean into what we know, that you are God, that you are faithful, that you are unchanging, and that you are with us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.